Let's open our Bibles to that sixth chapter of Romans. I made a statement a few minutes ago as we were looking at Psalm 15 about the jingles that are used in so many pulpits from John 3:16 and other places where they do not understand the sense of the words. Our morning devotions in our family are being taken from Acts right now. And if you read the whole book of Acts, you will not find a single occurrence of any one of the forms of the word love. It has 14 forms, love, loved, lovest, loving, beloved, so forth, in the Bible, but not a single occurrence of any one of them in the book of Acts, because it was not the apostles' message to go around telling everyone that God loved them. They did go around and tell them that God has raised up a judge that's going to judge the quick and the dead, and he's given assurance unto all men that he's going to do it by raising him from the dead. That was the kind message Paul had for the philosophers on Mars Hill. Right. Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Right. It's ridiculous to think that God dwells in a temple made with hands. Right. Your own poets have said that we are the offspring of God. If we are the offspring of God, do we look like gold and silver? <laughs> now that's, these are to the descendants of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and the rest of the company in Athens. And then he gets to the point and he says, God in times past have allowed idiots like you to be so ignorant. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. He calls them ignorant. Do you know who he was calling ignorant? The most educated, highly esteemed men on earth. God winked in times past at this ignorance, but now he's commanding all men to repent. And he's going to come and judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's given it. I'm repeating myself. I know because I love the word so much. He's given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection, some mocked. Some said, we will hear thee more of this matter. But Dionysius the Areopagite, Tamarus. And others got up out of that assembly and followed our brother Paul out of that meeting. Praise the Lord. Romans chapter 6. Brethren, a real Christian has a changed life. A baptized believer lives differently than he did before. A baptized believer lives differently than those around him. He's no longer a slave to sin. He's a slave to God. And he chooses to live a righteous life. The dominion of sin over him has been broken by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants to live for him. Some of you love Romans 6. We have a twofold prayer today. Lord, make the content and the intent of Romans 6 very clear and manifest To our minds. Lord, send thy Holy Spirit and convict us in our hearts of that content and intent. That's what we want. I want to make this as simple as possible. I want you to get your mental hands around Romans 6 so that you can hide it in your hearts and know what it says to you. But most of all, I pray that God will convict us that we want to go out of here and be changed. Men and women and boys and girls. Amen. We could take four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, and preach three or four or five verses at a time, and you would lose sight of the forest. We want the forest. Each verse is a tree. We'll look at the trees, but we want to see the forest. And the forest is the gospel of the grace of God that had just concluded by telling us about Jesus Christ being the second Adam and us being saved by his representation for us is not where we rest. We take that knowledge and we live it. If you were to read just Romans chapter 5, I think we'd all be fatalists. The second Adam's done it all for us. But we've got Romans 6, 7, and 8, which are all about practical sanctification, and living a holy life worthy of the God who saved us. Father in heaven, you have heard our prayer requests. Help us 
to see the Word of God clearly in its content and intent. And, O Lord, by the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit that you have sent down from heaven, convict our hearts of that content and intent that we would this day choose to be dead to sin and alive to God, that we would choose no longer to yield ourselves to sin, but to yield ourselves servants of righteousness, that we would understand that we have been freed from sin and the dominion of the law, that we might become voluntarily the bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see these things in Jesus' name and for his honor and glory, who loved us, gave himself for us, died, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures, all for us, that we might live unto thee as he does at this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The book of Romans, which you quizzers are studying right now, can be divided into four sections to help you understand it. Chapters 1 through 5 describe the universal condemnation that it's upon all men and that we are saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Chapters 6 through 8 tell us that that gospel ought to be lived in such a way that we show a changed life because of the salvation that's been given to us. Chapters 9 through 11 show the sovereignty of God in salvation, in particular to the nation of Israel, in passing by some and electing others. Chapters 12 through 16 outline and give details of how Christians are supposed to live. When you get into Romans 12, some of those verses have three little clauses in them of only a few words apiece, but each one is a Bible duty, a God-given duty of how we're to live. It ranges all over from working diligently on the job to being hospitable to paying taxes to the higher powers to allowing Christian liberty in chapter 14 to loving the spread of the gospel that Paul was describing in chapter 15 to bearing one another's burdens and to seeing his commendation of faithful Christians in chapter 16. There's the division of the book. When we come to chapter 6, it's the first chapter of the second division where we should have a changed life because of God's salvation of our souls. Within Romans 6, I don't care about being short or long. I just want to be clear and quickly go through these verses and trust that you'll stay focused with me and learn them and let's trust God to convict our hearts to be slaves of the Most High God. Amen. Chapter 6 can be divided one time. At between verses 13 and 14. Verses 1 through 13. The Apostle Paul is appealing to the metaphor of death. Jesus died. Therefore, we should act like we are dead to sin and alive to God. That's basically the, thir- the first 13 verses. He's just going to repeat it a number of different ways and appeal to your baptism where you showed that already. This sermon is going to be very similar to the second sermon last Sunday, and I do not care about repeating myself when it comes to practical godliness. We must live holy lives to show that we are risen with Christ. So that when Christ does appear, we shall appear with Him in glory. And we can know that we're going to appear with Him in glory. Verses 14 through 23 have another metaphor, and Paul's going to tell us that he's using A carnal, earthly metaphor, he says it in verse 19, I speak after the manner of men. He takes an illustration from civil society of slaves and masters. We were the slave of sin, but someone came and freed us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over us. It does not control us and dictate the terms of our lives, only if we yield to it. But we are to yield ourselves servants to a new master, and that's God himself, who has saved us by Jesus Christ. So there's two metaphors, first 13 verses, and then the last 10. One about death and life, and one about slavery, servitude to masters, being freed from the one so that you can serve the other. Very simple. But do you know what the whole, the whole chapter is to tell us? We should have a mindset of serving God all the time. We do not have a defeated mindset that we can't beat sin. 
When I say that, I do not mean that we can live sinlessly in, in sinless perfection. But we can deny sin and deny ourselves and yield our members in obedience to God. It no longer has dominion over us. It cannot control all of our activities. Once in a while, we may slip into it, but it, it doesn't control us anymore unless we give it the control. We've been delivered from it. And we should show that deliverance and live that deliverance. I, I really want to make this point. I, I feel if you can get the introduction, you'll get the whole chapter. We could almost close, sing a few songs and go home. This is, this is what it's done for me, what I'm about to tell you. There's a couple words in this chapter that are the most important to me in understanding it. The word reckon, that's not a word used in my part of the country where I came from. But it's used down here and you all understand it and so do I. To reckon something is to count it or to understand it. Right. Or to apply something, I reckon. We, we got the word reckon and we've got the word know. And if you go, why, if you read Romans 6 carefully and see how many times the word knowing or know is used, it's a mindset. Romans 6 is a mindset of someone who is claiming the first five chapters to be true of them. This is the mindset you're going to have. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God through Jesus Christ. My baptism had significance because I know what it meant. I know that he that is dead is freed from sin. The word knowing. Look at the word reckon in verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed into sin. The reason I want to focus on the word reckon, we do have a legal death of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. We have an eternal choice of God, of us in Christ Jesus in the New Testament. We have a vital principle and new man put in us by regeneration. But that's not what's talked about in Romans 6. In Romans 6, it's a mindset of the practical life of a Christian. You reckon things to be a certain way and you live accordingly to them. You reckon, if baptism was a picture of Jesus' death and his resurrection, then I reckon I ought to look like I died to something and that I'm alive to something. It's a chapter of reckoning and knowing. It's spiritual language. Right. And if you just blow through Romans 6, you won't catch it. And you'll be thinking that it's complicated and mysterious. But it's not. It's the simplicity of the gospel. Right. Jesus died for us. And his death is mentioned and appealed to, but the legal aspect of his death has already been covered in chapters 3, 4, and 5. It's what we should do to look like we have an interest in that death. That we're claiming that death and we're claiming that resurrection. I'm going to run you through the chapter real fast. Then we're going to go back and go a little slower and we're done. Follow with me because I believe this is the most important part. I'm hoping it's the same way to you as it is to me as to what the chapter means. I want to show you that it's a mindset. It's a choice that Christians make. I'm going to read the first two verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The issue at stake is what we think about how we ought to live. Should we continue in sin or not because grace is so great? The answer is no, we shouldn't continue in sin. It's how we think about the Christian life. It's stated right, right off the bat in verses 1 and 2. Then I'm going to read verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Notice, it's something you're supposed to know. It's a mindset. What is the mindset of a real Christian? Know ye not? See, this is not dealing with God's legal justification of us before in heaven by the death of Christ. It's how we view the death of Christ and its effect in our lives. I'm going to read verses 4 through 6. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death... We shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. 
The word knowing is in verse 6. Again, it's knowing something. If you, if you understand and know the doctrine of baptism properly, it'll change your life. Or you will change your life to line up with your baptism. Right. Knowing something. Verse 9. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Do you know a few basic facts about death? Because knowing those few basic facts about death tell you how you ought to live. Verse 11. Likewise, reckon. There's the word reckon. Verse 12. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. The issue is yielding. It's your choice. Are you going to yield to sin and the world, or are you going to yield to God and righteousness? Which one are you going to choose to obey? You've been delivered. You have a choice. You've been delivered from the dominion of your slave master in the past. Verse 12, let me go back to it. Let not sin therefore reign. We're dealing with the reign of sin. Not the existence of sin. We still have the presence of sin in our fleshly members, but it no longer reigns over us. When you see a person controlled by sin, don't tell me they're a child of God living in ignorance. When sin is reigning over a man, he, he doesn't show the dominion broken. Right. Even Lot. Do you know how the Bible describes Lot? We look at Lot. If, you, if all we had was Genesis chapter 19, we'd say he's a child of the devil. But when we get to second, when we get to second Peter, we're told about Lot that that man was vexed every day with the ungodly conversation of the wicked around him. You know, he, he had a problem. But somebody who is under the dominion of sin and is serving sin, we can't ever tell, say that they're a child of God and we shouldn't ever talk that way. Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Should we keep on sinning? He's right back to what he said in the first two verses. It's the mindset of a Christian. Look at verse, verses 16 and 17. Know ye not. Look at the word know again. Know ye not. You're supposed to understand something about your life of employment or, or servitude or what slaves, how slaves and masters get along and how they get free to go to another master. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience under righteousness. But God be thanked, they, their lives were changed. Verse 19. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. It's a choice to yield your members to serve God. And it's a choice we have assembled for today. It is why we have assemblies, to learn of what God has done for us and what we are to do for him, and we are to yield our members to be his slaves. Does it sound demeaning to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ? No. It sounds like a glorious position. Amen. Lord, is it possible that I could be your slave? Amen. What a privilege. Oh, but he's lifted us higher than that. We're just to live like slaves while we're sons. Isn't that a great son? What if your son came and said to you, Dad... I want to treat you like a slave the rest of your life. I'll do anything you say. We'd be pretty happy with a son like that. We would lift him up out of that position, though, wouldn't we? And tell him, you're more than a slave to me. You're my son. One more verse, verse 22. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. There's two words we want from verse 22. Fruit and end. The way you used to live, what was the fruit? A hangover? Divorce? Unhappiness? What was the fruit of all that stuff? Do you remember? It was pretty pitiful fruit, wasn't it? And what was the end? The way you used to live, the end of those things is death. We're ashamed of those things now. But we have new fruit and a new end. The new fruit? Holiness. The very nature and character and beauty of God. And what is the end of that? Everlasting life. Romans 6. Let's go back and go through it. Not much, not much slower than that. Not a little bit, but 
I want you to lay hold of it and, can, and walk away with one thing. I am dead to sin and I am alive to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. He has shown it to me. He has done it before me. And he's given me the power to do it. Because I am under grace, not under the law. I am not under a condemning system of religion. I am under an enabling system of religion. I am no longer the slave of sin and the devil. I I choose to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ unto God. I'm going to yield my life to him. He can have my eyes. He can have my time. He can have my soul, my feet, my money, my family, my marriage. I'll do it all unto him because I'm his slave. Romans 6. Lord, help us. Let's read the first two verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? This is a logical question that men would ask having read chapter 5. The Apostle Paul with the Holy Spirit understands what we would ask or should ask. And he asks the question for us and he answers it for us. It's a very effective way of writing. To ask a question that he presupposes the reader is going to have and then answer it. If you were to read Romans 5 and see the doctrine of representation in verses 12 through 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And you know, we, we harp on that. It's by the obedience of one that we're made righteous. Only one has to obey. If, if that's all you read, you'd wonder, well, then it doesn't matter how I live. If that's all we preached, you'd wonder, is that, is that all there is to it? Right. And brethren... We love Romans chapter 5. And we pound Romans 5. We love Romans 5. Don't you love Romans 5 since you've heard it? The two Adams. Adam. Isn't it wonderful? The obedience of one made us righteous. That is so precious. We become righteous the same way we became sinners. By a representative that God chose for us. But if we ended it right there, we lose. We do not fulfill God's purpose for us. What's his purpose for us? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That is the effect God's salvation should have on us. We should not sit back and say, wow, we can crush the Arminians with Romans 5. Well, you can say that, but just add another sentence to it. But let's live like Romans 5 applies to us, which requires us to read 6. It's a question that is Paul knew would be asked, the Holy Spirit knew would be asked, and the answer is in verse 2, and it only takes two words to get the answer out. God forbid. The last two verses of Romans chapter 5 say, The law came that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And it's so wonderful to preach sermons about grace did much more abound. Paul didn't just say that grace is more than sin. He says it abounds more than sin. But it just doesn't abound more than sin. It abounds much more than sin. And you know, we could go on and on and we can get our souls excited about the power of grace to overcome sin. Well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If grace can just cover all these sins, then we might as well just take it easy and let grace cover us. And we'll rejoice in grace every Sunday. That's not enough. Not enough. Got to go to chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we just go ahead and keep up our old habits just like we always have because grace is so powerful it's going to cover us? God forbid. God says no. No on the authority of God. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How shall we that are dead to sin? And that is not a legal statement. That is a practical one. How do we know that it's a practical one? Because look at his appeal. It's immediately to baptism. We have made a choice to be aligned with the Lord Jesus Christ. These people had already been converted and baptized. You know that, don't you? The book of Romans was written to a bunch of saints at Rome. And the Bible says of them in chapter 1, verse 8, their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. But even a church whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world needs reminders to live a holy life. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How are we dead to it? 
when we professed our confidence and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and our Savior, and were baptized in His name, we said we are dying to sin. Jesus died for our sins. He died to sin. He rose again. We're dead to sin. So how can we continue in sin who have said we're dead to it? Our sinful past is over. We have turned from our idols and from our sins to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. That's the testimony of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And that's ours. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We've been living in sin. The gospel comes and converts us. We make a choice to obey and follow it. We no longer are going to live in sin. How shall we? That's a ridiculous question. God forbid that we should continue in sin because there should be a changed life. Verses 3 through 7. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. The apostle, by the Holy Spirit, is pursuing the metaphor and analogy of death and life. And he's using our baptisms to show us that we've already admitted that we understood it. When he said in verse 2, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He explains it in verse 3 what he's talking about. You said you were dead to sin when you were baptized. Now we often go to Romans 6, 3 through 5 to prove why we're Baptists. But you know what? I'm not here for that purpose. And neither was that the primary purpose of Paul. The primary purpose of Paul was to live a holy life. You know, it says that we were buried in baptism. Buried with him by baptism. So baptism has to be immersion. We're planted together with him. How do you plant something? Children, if you take a seed and lay it on the sidewalk, will a plant grow? Do you have to stick it down in the ground? Well, we were, we were planted with the Lord Jesus Christ when we were planted in water and raised up out of it like a plant coming up out of the water. We were planted in it, and we grew right up out of the water just like Jesus grew up out of the grave and ascended up into heaven and lives unto God. We're not going to go to, we're not going to use, you know, the verses are great. It's one of our memory verses this week. Verse five, about being planted together in the likeness of his death. It's a likeness. It's a figure. These are wonderful verses. They prove that Baptists are right and Presbyterians are wrong. You don't, you don't have to be a theologian to figure that out. The Presbyterians were afraid to separate themselves from Rome on the doctrine of baptism. They stood for many good things when the Presbyterians originated just 400 years ago. But one thing they didn't stand for is the Bible doctrine of baptism. But let's look at what Paul's using baptism for. Verse 3, know ye not. Verse 6, knowing. We are to know something. Jesus Christ died to sin. Our sins were laid on him. All our iniquities were put on Jesus Christ. And he died to pay for those sins. He died to them. And when he rose from the dead, we were justified because those sins were put away. They were, in effect, buried with him in the tomb. And he rose to, to live forever at God's right hand. And these verses are telling us about that. Look what it says in the middle of verse 4. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father... Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. And we made that declaration when we were baptized. Because when we came up out of the water, that was a beautiful, symbolic, figurative likeness of what Jesus, our Lord, did for us. And it should have resulted in a changed life. And if you've slipped from your steadfastness of your baptism, the purpose for Romans 6 and the purpose for this sermon is to get it back. You were baptized. You buried your sins. You buried your old sinful way of living. You buried your old man. 
And up out of the water you came, just like Jesus Christ came up out of the grave to live for God. And so it should change our lives. We should rise to walk in newness of life. Baptism is a glorious thing, isn't it, Jerry? I had a wonderful conversation with Jerry this week. Much of it about baptism from last Sunday and how potent the figure is, the symbol is of baptism. Buried with him in baptism, risen to live to God, just like Jesus is living right now. Planted in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And that is not the resurrection of the body at the last day. That is the resurrection of his life unto God because the context just keeps right on going with our practical resurrection. It's in the future tense to tell us that it is a continuing, ongoing process that we continue to develop in. Paul would write in Philippians chapter 1, He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. Paul would write in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know the power of his resurrection. He was still trying to fulfill the resurrected life that Jesus Christ demonstrated for us. Are you with me on that? Oh, is it true that baptism is a picture of the resurrection of the body? Absolutely true. But we don't go here to prove it. We go here to prove that we're burying our old man to rise to walk in a new life of holiness unto God. Where would you go to prove that baptism is a picture of the resurrection of the body? How about the chapter in the Bible that's about the resurrection of the body? 1 Corinthians 15, and you've got a text that'll tie them in knots. But that's not our purpose this morning either. Don't get me off on that one. I love 1 Corinthians 15, 29, because I got shamed and hung out to dry once by two Mormons with my dad watching. Oh, that was ugly. Hung me out to dry. I wish I could meet those two little boys again. I'd like to tell them about the apostle and high priest of my profession from Hebrews 3.1. They got their apostles sitting out in Salt Lake City trying to figure out how to keep five wives on the side. They've got their high priests of the Levitical and Melchizedek priesthood out there in Salt Lake City. I have one high priest and one apostle. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the profession of my faith. That was the profession of Paul's faith. So their faith isn't Paul's faith. And therefore it's not mine. But that's not for today either. Do you, this in verse 5 is continuing verse 4. If you're, if you're wondering about that last clause of verse 5 where it says, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, he has gone to the future tense to make it a promise of God that if you are committed to understanding your baptism and choosing to be dead to sin and alive to God, you shall be in the likeness of Christ who is now filled with life of service at the right hand of God. We know that that's the intent, because that's the overall context, and because of the next verse explaining what he meant. Because he says, knowing this, the future tense about a resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. We have a new life. We have died to sin. And that new life is what should show in our lives based on our baptism. Because our baptism is based on what Jesus Christ did. He, was, he died and was buried, and he rose again to the right hand of God. We're going to continue to read things about that. Verse 8. I hope I have spent enough time on verses 3 through 7. Much time could be spent, but I fear that you would be getting into the leaves and the, the bark and forget the trees and the forest of what this chapter is for. This chapter is, if God has saved us, our lives should be changed. And we can change them. The stranglehold of sin in our lives has been broken by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's delivered us out of the palace of the strong man. Don't yield yourself back to that strong man. Fight that strong man. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Yield yourself unto God through Jesus Christ. Every part of you. What part of you has been sinning this past week? What part of you? Tell me. Your eyes, your heart, your thoughts, your feet, your hands, your marriage, your finances, your job, your lust. Yield those things to God as being alive from the dead. 
Your baptism said that you were going to do that. Your baptism pictured you doing it. Let's do it. Amen. Let's thank God for Romans chapter 5 and let's live Romans chapter 6 to show them that we are indeed thankful. Amen. Verse 8, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Not in heaven. On earth. How do we know that it's talking about on earth and not in heaven? By the next verse. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. The living unto God in this chapter is not our glorification. It's our practical sanctification. It's now. We live with Christ now unto God. We're alive now in the way that we look at our lives. We were dead in sin. Following the devil. Following the course of this world. Not even putting up a struggle. Enjoying it. Then we heard the gospel of the grace of God. God had already regenerated our hearts. We heard the gospel. We believed it. We were baptized to show a picture that that old way of life, we're dead to it. And we're alive to God. We rise to walk in newness of life. We are alive with Christ on earth. In practical sanctification, He walks with us. He indwells us by His Spirit. We have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. We showed it in baptism and we're to choose it every day. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God likewise. You know what that word means? In the same way Jesus did it in verse 10, we're to do it in verse 11. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Are you convinced by now? You're alive now. Not then when your resurrected body is in heaven. I want to take this chapter and rescue it from a legal and vital application for you to understand that it's entirely practical. It's about a sanctified life in Jesus Christ now. Not waiting until you're glorified. He'll take care of all that then. This is one we're to take care of now. By following the pattern that went before us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is soul-delivering and theology-delivering understanding of Romans 6. We have part of our heritage from a group of Baptists who would let Romans 5 taint Romans 6. So that most of Romans 6 would be legal. And you could get all the way through Romans 6 and not have any burden on you to live differently. The death, the death, the death that's repeated over and over is Christ's legal transaction for our justification. We want to lift ourselves past that and see what Paul's driving at. And so he says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, verse 11, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not a life coming. It's a life now. So that when we read verse 8, blessed is the man. Verse 8. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. If we have chosen to be dead to sin, because Jesus Christ is dead to sin, so we're dead with Christ toward sin, but we're alive toward God with Jesus Christ as well. Jesus died and was buried, and he rose to serve God forever. Every moment at his right hand. And we are like that now. Christ has delivered us so that we can do that. We want to do that. We should do that. Likewise. Just like Jesus. Paul's Paul's repeating himself for us to get it. Verse 10. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. He didn't have to die twice or four or five times because sin was over as far as he was concerned. Sin was over. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. He's not going back. He died to sin once. His life is committed to serving God in heaven. And he is our brother. He is a man about the height of the men in this room in a glorified body right now. I want you to understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is and why so many appeals can be made to him. Jesus Christ was God, but Jesus Christ was also a man. He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. He's at God's right hand, and what He did, we are to follow. He is our Savior, He is our Apostle, He is our High Priest, He is the Shepherd and Bishop of our souls, He's the Head of the Church, He's the Cornerstone, He's everything. Right. 
And we're to be like Him. And you know when we said that we were going to be like Him? When we were baptized. We buried our sins to arise in life, to live with Jesus Christ on earth as He is living for God in heaven. And one day soon He will deliver our bodies from the corruption of this flesh and we will be glorified in heaven. But we don't relax and think we're glorified yet because we have a choice to make and that is to live up to our baptisms. Verse 12. we got to keep moving. I don't want you to get tired. Let not sin, therefore. When we have a therefore, if you were baptized, and if you're dead with Christ, and if you're risen with Christ, and if you're living with unto God through Jesus Christ, then here's what you should be doing. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. What does it mean to reign? It's kingly rule, without exception. A king against whom there is no rising up was sin in your past. You did not rise up against it. You were bound by it. But you are not to let sin reign anymore. You will fall into sin. But you will confess that sin and get out of it by the grace of God. You will not let it reign where it's controlling you. Day after day, day after day, dictating the terms of your life? No. That is not a Christian. A Christian will not do that because he has reckoned himself to be dead to sin and alive to God. Verse 11. Therefore, he will not let sin reign or rule or control him. And you can put a stop to sin ruling and reigning over you. We are not fatalists sitting around waiting for God to do all that for us. In your effort... In your effort not to let sin reign over you, God will give you the strength not to let sin reign over you. Jesus will enable you. He's the great enabler by the Holy Spirit of God inside you. He's dwelling with you. He'll walk with you. But He wants you to live up to what He's already done for you. Verse 13, neither yield. Look, we got a different word. Verse 12 is don't let sin reign. What's a reigning sin in your life? A sin that tries to reign. Don't say it. I don't want to embarrass you. Everybody have sins? Listen. You wives, is it hard to submit and be cheerful? To be the sweet little wife you should be? Are you critical? you negative? Men, do you like to look at attractive women? Is it easy to lust after them? Do we all have sins that try to reign over us? The sins that... Easily beset us. You don't have to let them reign. Jesus Christ has broken their hold on you. Jesus Christ has already done it before you. And he's at heaven living for God. You've been baptized saying that you're going to do the same thing he did. Do not let it reign over you. That's verse 12. Verse 13. Neither. Second point. Yield. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin... But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Don't let sin reign and yield. Turn this whole thing over to God. Your whole body. All your members. And it's a mindset. Do you know what your members are for now? Do you know what your eyes are for now? Your ears are for now? Did you read it? What does it say? Your members are... To serve righteousness. They're instruments of righteousness. All of a sudden, my hands have a different purpose. They're to do things for God through Jesus Christ. My eyes have a new purpose. They're to see things for God through Jesus Christ. My ears, I should be listening to godly music for God through Jesus Christ. I yield all my members, all the parts of my body, as instruments of righteousness. They were, this this whole thing was the slave for sin. But now I'm to yield it to God. Can we take this home with us? Our eyes, our ears, our tongue, my tongue. My tongue should be speaking the praise of God. My My tongue should be provoking and exhorting one another. My tongue should be thankful because I'm yielding it as an instrument of righteousness. This thing used to be an instrument of death and damnation, sin and seduction. Totally different. Where did it all come from? God broke the chains by Jesus Christ 
upon our souls and the gospel came to us and it taught us that we ought to deny ourselves. We got baptized in water to show that we were dead to sin and we're alive to God. That's where it all came from. And it's a mindset that we have as Christians. My whole life, my money, my intellect. We have a song we sing all this, don't we? My hands, my feet, all of it. Instruments of righteousness unto God. Because I yield them. I give them over to God. He has told me how they are to be used. I give them over to God. In times past, I or any man just relaxed and gave everything over to the devil. Let your mind run wild. Lie there in bed and let your mind run wild on sinful fantasies. How about lying there in bed and quoting memory verses to yourself? Quoting the scriptures to yourself. Praising God for what he's done for you. Telling God how much you love him. Now every instrument you have, every member that you have in your body is an instrument of righteousness. I hope, I hope it's plain enough. That's the first half of the chapter. That's off the metaphor of dead and alive. The analogy of dead and alive because Jesus died for us and is alive to God. We said by baptism we were dead to sin like Jesus and we were alive to God like Jesus. And we must put that mindset on every day. We must reckon that we cannot yield to sin We cannot let it rain because the hole's been broken. Let's live unto God. Thank you, Lord, for Romans 6. Yes. I was dead in sin. Then I died to sin. That I could be free from sin and live unto God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. At verse 14, he switches. He's no longer dealing directly with life and death or death and life or burial and living unto God. It's slavery and masters. And so he's drawing from life that you once had a master and you were a slave to him and you did everything he told you to do. But Jesus Christ broke that master's hold on you. He broke his dominion over you and set you free. And now you should choose to be a slave of God. And he tells you, I'm picking a natural analogy to help you understand because of the weakness of your little minds. And he writes that to pastors and everybody. That's what he says. Where does he say that? He says it in verse 19. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. Because it's so hard for you to understand spiritual things, I'm going to go ahead and compare it to being a slave to two different masters. I I like Paul admitting what we are and himself and, and telling us, I'll make it simple for you with an illustration. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. He's just told you, don't let sin reign and don't yield your members. Now, if you've been under a misunderstanding that that's impossible for you to do, then verse 14 is going to correct your misunderstanding because it says, for sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. We are under a totally different system of religion. I do not want to get carried away with this, but boy, there is such a difference between the law and grace. The issue here is dominion. You will fall into sin from time to time, but sin is not going to have dominion over you if you're living for God. Jesus Christ broke the dominion. The chains are broken. You've been rescued out of the palace of the strong man. We had the word reign in verse 12. We had the word yield in verse 13. And that's what is to be understood by the word dominion. Sin does not reign over us and control us anymore because we are under grace, not under the law. We are under a different system of religion than the Old Testament had. The Old Testament system of religion was Moses. We're under Christ. They were under a system of works. We're under the gospel. Theirs is the Old Testament. Ours is the new. Their law was a doctrine and system of condemnation. The only purpose the law was ever given was to condemn you. There was no hope in it. And there was no success in it. It was hopeless. It was futile. You were condemned. We have a system of the glorious grace of God that is full of success and full of hope. The Old Testament required perfection. The New Testament requires sincerity. Jesus makes up the difference. The law demanded what we must do. Grace assists us in what we should do. Oh, it's good. The law provides no illustration of success. The gospel is full of success because we see Jesus Christ 
doing it all before us. The law provided no spirit for the power to do it. The gospel comes with the spirit of God indwelling us to give us the power to do it. Sin shall not have dominion over you. It can no longer control you. It doesn't reign. Jesus broke it because you're under the grace of God. Now remember your baptism and choose to live according to that grace. The question then would be asked for the second time in the chapter. That's why there's two divisions. For the second time in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? You know, a Jew would particularly say that. If you're just going to blow the law out the back door, then should we just go ahead and sin because we're no longer under the law? What's the answer to this question? God forbid. God forbid. The dominion has been broken. If the dominion's been broken to a bad master who is keeping you a slave of sin, if that dominion has been broken, why would you want to go back there? You should turn and run the other direction. Be a runaway slave to find a new master. And who is that new master? The Lord Jesus Christ. Here's where, here's the explanation. Verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or, or of obedience unto righteousness. It is a choice. And it stems from our mindset of understanding the gospel. Jesus has delivered us from the dominion of sin. It no longer rules and reigns and controls all our choices. We do not have to let it reign and we do not have to yield to it. But if, as a child of God, you yield yourself to sin and obey sin, then you're choosing to remake sin your master. That's what verse 16 is teaching us. You become a servant of sin again. By yielding to it. Fight it. Fight that sin off. God hates it. Jesus hated it. Jesus defeated it. Jesus lives for God. You make the same choices. You hate it. You defeat it. You turn to God. And yield your servants to obey Him. And, and the Romans had, and you have. But I exhort you to do more and more. Amen. Verse 17 says, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Now what was that form of doctrine? God has saved us from the penalty of sin. He's saved us from the plan of sin. He's saved us from the power of sin. He's going to save us from the very presence of sin. And we are to choose not to practice sin. Verse 18, Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Having that stranglehold broken that was upon us, first of all, vitally, by being born again, and then practically by hearing the gospel, because the gospel teaches us, remember the first verses this morning, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ourselves. When we heard that gospel, it taught us something. God be thanked. Verse 18, being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. We hear the truth of the gospel. God hates sin. Jesus died to pay for sin because it's so horrendous in the sight of God. It damned souls to the lake of fire. It ruined our race. And so we died to sin when we were buried like Jesus was buried for us. He rose to live unto God for the rest of eternity. And we come up out of that water to live unto God as well for the rest of eternity. He'll glorify us to help us in just a few months. Trust me. Or trust some of the older people in the congregation. Life flies by. In a few months, he'll take care of yielding and reigning for us forever. Because he'll be glorified in heaven. And there won't even be a struggle anymore. But you know, if you'll put up a little bit of a struggle, the Lord will give you strength to struggle a little harder. And a little harder that you struggle, it gets easier to live a righteous life. He'll He'll give you the grace and power to do it. Verse 19, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. Therefore, I've used the illustration of servitude. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. It is a choice. This is our practical salvation. The Romans had done it. 
But notice, even though the Romans had done it, Paul's still exhorting them to do it. Because don't we need constant reminders to do it, even though we've done it? Because if one day we've done it, the next day we may not do it. And therefore we need one another to press each other that we will day by day do it. Because having done it one day is not proof of anything. It's doing it consistently. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Oh, yield your members, servants, to righteousness, unto holiness. Do you mean this corrupt thing called Jonathan Crosby in his flesh can yield himself and his members to be instruments of righteousness unto holiness? Yes. The dominion of sin has been broken. It's a choice. It's a mindset. We should do it. Verse 20, For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. When you were a slave of sin, you didn't have any interest in righteousness. Righteousness had no hold or claim on you. You served one master and you served him entirely. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. It, is, it was as if you had been freed from the master called righteousness, called God, called Jesus Christ, because you were entirely sinning. But when God breaks the dominion of sin over us, then we become free from sin, free from its bondage and dominion and reign, so that we can live unto God and live unto righteousness. Right. Verse 21, he, he's making fun of why, why you'd ever want to live in sin. Why would you even ask the question, shall we continue in sin? What fruit, verse 21, what fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? You're ashamed of sin now. Back when you were living in that sin, what was the fruit of it? Think of, think of the fruit of the world. Drunkenness, unemployment, capital punishment, divorce, pain, loneliness, suffering, STDs. On and on and on. What fruit had ye then? In those things whereof ye now are ashamed. We had no fruit. So why would we want to go back? When I played the fool, like some young men like to play, for a while in my life, I was the loneliest, most unhappiest, most frustrated person on planet earth. Now I know there would be other people that would argue with me, but all I could do is tell my soul, there is no more pain I could bear. Because I was as lonely as my soul could allow me to, to, to bear. What fruit did I have in those things of, where, of which I am now ashamed? There was no fruit at all. God forgive me, but I've tried a few things. When it says those things whereof you are now ashamed, I've tried a few things. And there was no fruit in them. That's worth talking about. It was all pain. It all ended up in pain and misery. For the end of those things is death. While you're in them, it's terrible, and then it gets worse. Now, how's that for sin? Verse 21. Why would you ever go back to sin? The stranglehold's been broken. We may fall, but let's confess it and, and, and swear again our allegiance to be a slave of God through Jesus Christ. Verse 22. But now being made free from sin. Not free from ever sinning, but free from sin's dominion. Free from sin's reign. Do you understand that? We're not free yet from sin altogether. It's not till glorification that we're saved from the presence of sin. We're saved from its power over us. We're, we're saved from its reign and its dominion. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, which we did when we were baptized, ye have your fruit unto holiness. The things that you do show a holy life, and it's acceptable in the sight of a holy God, and the end is everlasting life. Now that is a big contrast. Verses 21 and 22. The fruit of sin is pain and misery, disappointment and frustration and trouble. And the end of it is death. The fruit of living a holy life, alive, with God, alive to God through Jesus Christ, is a holy life that's beautiful and pleasing to God. And it, it makes everything beautiful. Amen. As we sang today, December's as pleasant as May. A prison, a palace would prove when we're living that way. And what's the end of that life? Where will that life get you? Everlasting life in heaven. For the wages of sin, explanation, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God gave the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He could have have regenerated us and taken us right to heaven. 
rejection to heaven. He didn't do that. He chose to leave us here to see if we would yield ourselves servants and slaves to him. Do you want to be a slave of God through the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope you do. That's what Romans 6 is all about. I hope you understood it. I hope I made it clear enough. God forgive me if I didn't. I hope I made it clear and I hope I made it manifest. And may God the Holy Spirit convict us of it. That when we walk out of here, we will yield everything that we have to be servants and instruments of righteousness unto holiness. What a, what a blessing. What a privilege. And that we will be slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.